From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. The eyes of the world, the eyes of the populations of the world are on you and we have your numbers. That lingering central fleas remains and we'll see what comes next. We need to make sure that what sits there on a piece of paper is actually going to turn into tangible, actionable projects on the ground that are going to make a difference to people's lives. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Caroline Hepke. Good afternoon, I'm Ewan Potts. Well, on today's special programme, do we need to improve the oversight of MPs? We'll discuss that with our guests from the Institute of Government, Gov- Institute for Government, and we'll dig into the latest public views on the issue with the pollster opinion. Well, first, a word on the politics of the day. Brexit Minister David Frost is meeting Vice President of the European Commission, Maros Sefcovic, in London today. It'll be the fourth attempt now to come to a resolution on the issues around trade for Northern Ireland. Frost told the House of Lords on Wednesday that triggering the get-out clause, that is, Article 16, would be the UK's only option if the dispute was not resolved with the EU. They seem to be claiming that it will be entirely unreasonable for the British government to use these wholly legitimate safeguard provisions within the treaty. I gently suggest that our European friends should stay calm and keep things in proportion. Well, Frost went on to say that in his view, this talks process has not reached its end. Well, a new draft of a climate pact being debated at the final day of COP26 talks in Glasgow maintains that most of the key elements climate watchers were looking for, uh, but with some tweaks. Now, the draft negotiated overnight now requests countries come back with better climate action plans for 2030 by next year instead of being urged to. There's also a call for rich nations to double the amount of money by 2025 that they spend helping poor countries to adapt to climate change. Well, let's get to the subject now of our special Friday programme. Well, the grumbling began even as they lined up in the House of Commons to vote. Almost 250 Conservative MPs followed Boris Johnson's three-line whip to scrap the parliamentary rules rather than accept the punishment of a former minister found guilty of paid advocacy. One MP, though, self-described Johnson loyalist, likened the mood to the worst days of wrangling over Brexit when the Tory party was tearing itself apart. Well, we'll discuss the impact of that and the days and days of terrible newspaper front pages on the Prime Minister and his party leaders' ratings in the programme later on. But first, let's dig down into how MPs are overseen and whether the system is up to the job. Joining us now to discuss that is uh, from the Institute for Government, the Associate Director, Tim Durant. Tim, thanks so so much for joining us. Um, Was there a problem with the process for Owen Paterson? He, He says he had no right of appeal. Yeah, this is the big claim that he and, and, and the government actually made in the in the debate last week. So officially, there is there is no stage of the process that's called an appeal 
process or an appeal stage. That word isn't used. But it is a multi-stage process. So with these significant breaches of, of the MP's code of conduct, like the paid advocacy that he was found to have done, um, the independent commissioner on standards, who is a, an unelected, she's a civil servant effectively, she carries out an investigation with her team. She talks to the MP in question. She gathers evidence. She writes a report. That then goes to the Committee on Standards, which is uh, a select committee of the House of Commons. It has MPs on it, it has cross-party representation on it, but it also has lay members, so non-MPs who are, you know, experts in kind of dispute resolution and and, and bring external experience to to the issues. That committee looks through the Commissioner's report, um, investigates themselves, takes more evidence, talks again to the MP in question, and then writes their own report and says, this is what we think the, the sanction should be. So effectively, the MP has a chance to put their case again, to appeal against the, the, the judgment or, or the sort of um, findings of the commissioner. And then, of course, it gets when, when an MP is recommended to be um, suspended, as happened with Patterson, it then goes to a vote in the Commons as mm. well. So there's another stage, and that's, that's when the government kind of waded in and tried to overturn the judgment. Mm, yes, indeed. And also, I suppose, important to note that the number of days is important because with this sanction, Owen Paterson essentially would um, you know, potentially have lost his seat as an MP. So the sanction was quite you know, significant in that sense. Do you think, though, that the role of the standards commissioner that you've just talked about, do you think that that role could be improved in any way? I think it's a really difficult role and I really do, you know, take my hat off to, to Catherine Stone and her team because it's, it's just a really difficult job. Uh, it's the balance that the system tries to strike is between independence, so having someone who is outside the political fray who can look at the questions kind of impartially and respecting the fact that MPs are elected and it is, you know, they are there first and foremost to serve their constituents and the, um, it's, it, it wouldn't be acceptable, and I think MPs agree, and, and I think everyone agrees, it wouldn't be acceptable for solely an unelected person to say, this person who has been elected can no longer do the job. Because the argument MPs make was, I've been elected by my constituents in whichever part of the country, and they want me to do this job. So what the system tries to do is has an independent person looking at it, but mm, yeah. allows the elected people on the committee to take the kind of final decision and make the recommendations. And I think whatever changes are made, that balance between independent and democratic oversight has to be kept. Owen Patterson said it was unfair that he couldn't bring witnesses that, as he would be expected to do in a sort of, you know, in a criminal case. Is, is, that, a, mm. is that a fair criticism? Well, so what the committee said was that they, they read witness statements, witnesses made uh, sort of uh, written statements, and um, were, they were able to do that. Um, and they said that the, the, the Chris Bryant and his committee, the standards committee, said they didn't think there would be anything to be gained by having a kind of an, an, a hearing with, um, with these witnesses. I think maybe from the point of view of the kind of the well-being of the person going through the process, um, you know, the sort of duty of care of the Commons to its members, perhaps allowing them to bring witnesses uh, would help so that they feel like they've had a fair hearing. But mm. it, I don't think it wouldn't have changed the outcome in this case, and I don't think it will change the outcome in any case, because there is already the opportunity for witness evidence to be considered. OK, on the flip side, 
this kind of, as the um, report said, egregious paid lobbying, if you cannot Mm. sanction and basically get rid of an MP like this, who is found to have... Uh, you used his position, um, you know, in, in a corrupt way, effectively, then surely the system is absolutely hopeless. Well, and that's, I think, I think that's right. But effectively, the system did work. It took, it took 10 days to work, or, or well, it was put out. Two really, years of investigation, happened, for example. Two years of investigation, yeah, indeed. But there were a lot of pauses because of the pandemic and because of um, issues in, in, in Patterson's personal life. So, yeah, I think everyone agreed that the investigation should have uh, should have moved more quickly, um, but some of that was outside the kind of the control of the um, the committee and the commissioner. Um, but as you say, the, the, the sanction the, 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 the sanction that was recommended was thirty day suspension, which means that he would had it gone ahead, he would have been um, sort of open to a recall petition, so his constituents could have decided actually, yeah, we want to have a by election. Um, and, but that again, that's the, that's the kind of severest sanction that can be levied if you want to maintain the kind of democratic, the ultimate backstop being the the voters. And it, it, as I say, it's difficult but to should, see a system. Oh, should it be the backstop? Should the backstop be the voters, or should the standards be the standards? I think I think it has to be because I think otherwise it, it delegitimizes it. it. You know, it's it, it's it's it's. Awkward and it's it's kind of uncomfortable, but yeah, as you say, if there's been such a uh, an egregious, to use the committee's word, such an egregious case of breaking the rules, um, that there isn't a kind of automatic uh, sanction. But but that is just the, the the complexity of working in in a in a democratically elected parliament. I think that's how it has to be. In in your view, how well has the system been working over the past few years? This is the first time it's blown up like this. But has it been? Is it is it been pretty effective? I think it has. I think, you know, one of the big discussion points last week was that it was a shame that the government was trying to rip up the system because the UK system is well respected throughout the world. It tries and it gets that balance between independence and and, and democratic oversight pretty good. And actually, as you say, this is the first one that's kind of blown up. But, but these investigations happen all the time, often for very minor things like, you know, MPs using House of Commons stationery for personal business. Basic rules that don't require a vote like that and that you know the MP just needs to there are sort of automatic sanctions for those minor infractions um, mm. and that that works and that has been working well and also you know the, the commissioner has investigated the prime minister a couple of times over various things that he should have declared um, and and so on so there are um, the, the the most of most of the time the system does work well and it um, and it is there to uphold standards and also the commissioner has the ability to say I've received a complaint about such and such an MP or such and such an issue. And actually, I don't think this is worth investigating. So, you know, she has she has the independence to to make those judgments on on what is worth spending time on. And I think that shows the system is working well, too. OK, um, a last thought, because this, as I as we sort of have implied, but but has is quite clear in the UK, is that it has opened up um, mm. and revisited the allegations of corruption or um, you know, mismanagement by the government in other areas, allegations, yeah. I say. So awarding contracts to private firms, for example, the refurbishing of Downing Street, now the cash for peerages allegations. Yeah. So what's your assessment on those? Where do we go now in terms of this, uh, of this process? Are there going to be more inquiries, surely? 
I think, I mean, yeah, you know, investigations are, are going to continue. We're waiting to hear what the Electoral Commission is, is has found on the Downing Street flat refurbishment and whether that kind of gets into party funding rules. Mm. Um, there are, um, uh, we're expecting the Prime Minister to publish an updated ministerial code, which is a set of rules that govern how ministers in government behave. Yeah. Um, the Committee on Standards is going to publish its findings for how the, the sort of common standards process can be updated. So there are lots of things still kind of coming down the line. And and actually, uh, next week, there will be a vote in the Commons effectively undoing the vote last week when the government overruled the patent suspension and set up this new committee to look at standards. So that, you know, it, it, this topic is not going away mm-hmm. in the near term or in the medium term. I think the yes. question mm-hmm. is, is whether... Is this the kind of, you know, the final straw, right? Like, there have been these kind of low-level stories about this kind of stuff, as you say, contracts. David Cameron's lobbying earlier in the year. Mm. Right? You know, this Tim. has been a topic throughout. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. So what impact has more than a week of terrible headlines had on public opinion? A lot's been made of an opinion poll for The Observer, which after the first wave of the scandal involving former Minister Owen Paterson, it showed the Prime Minister's personal ratings falling to minus 20, down from minus 16 the previous week. Well, it also found that nearly half of UK voters believe that the Prime Minister and his party are corrupt. Joining us now is Chris Curtis from Opinion. Chris, the poll that you did for the Observer newspaper was seen as very important as a first gauge, really, around the so-called sleaze uh, allegations. What did it show, do you think? Well, I think we can be fairly certain now that the Owen Paterson story um, has cut through. We've seen our poll in the Observer at the weekend showing the Conservative lead falling. But we've also seen lots of other polls since then showing the Conservative lead dropping as well. We've even seen some polling, and you know, there's been very, very few of these this year, but we have seen some polling over the past, past few days that's even shown Labour ahead. And this has come at the same time as we've seen a drop in support for the Prime Minister. And we've also seen an increase in the number of people who describe the Prime Minister and the Conservative Party as corrupt. So I think it's definitely true that this story has cut through. But I think it's also worth putting this latest polling in a little bit of a wider context. Yeah. Because whilst this story might have had an impact, actually the Conservative Party lead in the polls has been falling fairly consistently since May. Back in May, they had a 10-point lead because of the success of that vaccine rollout. And it's been going down ever slowly ever since. And there's lots of other sort of longer-term drivers of that. The Conservatives are less trusted on the economy. People no longer think they're the party of low taxes or the party that's the best place to stick up for their finances. They're no longer convinced that Boris Johnson is the strong Prime Minister who can get things done. So I think there's a lot of other longer-term factors that are meaning the Tories are, are struggling in the polls. It's not just this, uh, these, this latest cronyism and corruption allegations. How, how, how big a drop do you think we've seen in, in the past um, week and a half or so? Just quantify this in terms of kind of other sort of movements we see, you know, week to week in, in, in the party's various standings. 
Yeah, that's fair. So, I mean, one of the biggest sort of instant drops we saw in a poll or in in a polling lead, or in recent times at least, was after the Dominic Cummings-Bernard Castle sort Mm. of scandal. And then we saw the Conservative lead drop nine points in a week. So they went from around a 16-point lead. uh, Sorry, around a... Yeah, well, they dropped around nine points. So it was was around 15 points down to around six points over the course of a week. This latest accusation, the average drop seems to be about half of that. So the Tories have gone from a dropped about four points from around a five-point lead to around a one-point lead. Okay, so what has this done then for Labour and for Keir Starmer? Is it an issue that they can capitalise on, have capitalised on, or perhaps could benefit from going forwards? I'm still not sure that this is going, specifically is going to be the kind of thing that Labour can capitalise on in the long term. Slee stories come, slee stories go. I think the big debate over the next two years is still going to be on economics. And if it were me in the Labour Party, that's the thing I'd be focusing a lot more of my effort on, trying to prove the point that the Tories are no longer the party that's going to look after your financial interests. And we, once again, um, are the party that can be trusted to run the economy. The public still don't think that's true of Labour, and Labour need to convince them that is the case. And I think Labour should probably be putting a lot more effort into making that argument rather than getting caught up into the day-to-day debates about sort of corruption or sleaze. What about uh, recent polling on uh, other figures in the government? Uh, Chancellor Rishi Sunak made comments about the party having to do better uh, when he was uh, at the COP summit this week. So tell us tell us what the public's view are of the other key figures in the government. Well, it's always worth remembering that uh, the public don't necessarily have a particularly strong opinion on most people in the government. Outside the Prime Minister, there's very, very few politicians uh, that do have uh, that do have significant cut through. Rishi Sunak is obviously one of the exceptions. During the pandemic, his um, ratings in the opinion polls were incredibly good. He was, by quite some distance, the most popular politician in the country. Now, in recent opinion polls, that's definitely dropped off slightly, um, and I don't think it would be fair to describe him as the most popular politician in the country anymore. Um, and he definitely is... Um, He's struggling a lot more, I think, because he's having to move away from the pandemic where he was basically Mm. giving lots of people free money to a situation now where he's having to make more difficult decisions about the future of the economy and how to balance the books and everything else. So he's definitely less popular than he used to be, but it's still the case that more people say they approve of the job he's doing than disapprove of the job he's doing. and, And that's still very rare for a politician. Um, yeah. He's probably the only one that has significant cut through, and I still think it's okay. fair to say his numbers are fairly good, definitely better than the Prime Minister's. Yes, I mean, as you say, giving free cash away always helps, but can there be anybody in Britain who is unaware of the squeeze on household incomes? Um, but look, how does that uh, stack up against Boris Johnson? Because it was sort of seen that Rishi Sunak, it wasn't quite an apology, but ha- saying that they had to do better was a big concession, whereas Boris Johnson did not come to Parliament for the emergency debate on Owen Paterson. He has not apologised for the sleaze scandal. And some people, certainly within Westminster circles, see that as a as a problem. I mean, would an apology from the Prime Minister on sleaze help or hinder? I, it's very, very hard to tell, I mean, whether apologies work. The- Prime Minister seems to have this attitude of just don't apologise, just move on, just try and look strong. And, you know, the polling has generally shown that he's considered to be a stronger leader than many of his political opponents. But I do think that running away from Parliament because he was trying to avoid having to apologise didn't in the end end 
end up looking strong. In fact, I think many people, including the leader of the opposition, tried to make the argument that it made him look weak, and I think that's probably one of the reasons why the Conservatives have dropped a bit in the polls. But, I mean, fundamentally, I think that in a few weeks' time, I'm not sure how significant this is going to be. You know, the Mm. big thing people are going to be thinking about this winter is still going to be their finances, their prices going up, and their wages potentially not going up as quick. And I think the Prime Minister probably is going to be a lot more concerned about that in the long run rather than necessarily these these latest allegations. I see only uh, two-thirds of of people you polled have got a view on uh, Keir Starmer and the job he's doing as Labour Party leader. Has the Labour Party leader been quite slow uh, in uh, getting the recognition uh, from the public? I mean, it's been a tricky time to become party leader, obviously. Yeah, so we've um, yeah, I mean, we've, we've spent a lot of time talking about the difficulties facing the government. I think you know, one of the reasons the government might still not be too concerned about the opinion polling at the moment is because whilst their polling is going downwards, things aren't looking particularly good for the Labour Party either. Um, people have started to form an opinion on Keir Starmer, and the more they've got to know him, um, the less they <laughs> the less they seem to like him. There's a general view among the public that he's competent. More people will say that he's competent than incompetent, which definitely isn't true of the Prime Minister. But there's also a view emerging that he isn't strong enough to do the top job. Um, and I think that's going to be something that the Tories try to capitalise on in the next few years. I think we'll start to see lots of arguments mm. about Keir Starmer being too weak to stand up to X, Y and Z and is therefore not able to do the job of Prime Minister. So he needs to turn around and he needs to convince people he's strong. And while people generally think he's competent, they still don't trust the Labour Party to run the economy. So he needs to make the argument that, yes, you see me as competent, also see me as economically competent and see my my party as economically competent as a consequence. Okay, if people are worried then about their incomes, rising taxes, rising prices um, and perhaps wages not keeping up, are voters really going to be in favour of doing more on climate change? Because Boris Johnson's tried to sort of make the case it's not going to mean a radical change to people's lifestyles. Most environmentalists recognise that it is. Somebody's got to pick up the bill for climate change. Um what do voters make of this and uh, do they have a good handle on what it's going to mean for them? Yeah, and this is this is basically the big difficulty that's going to be facing the go- any government mm. over the coming years is the public say that they're really concerned about climate change now. A few years ago, it barely registered on our top issues in- index. Now it is regularly said to be one of the top issues facing the country by voters. Sometimes young voters even say it's the most important issue facing the country. They all think that the government should be doing more. They want the targets, if anything, to be more ambitious than they currently are. But when you ask people, are you willing to pay more money in order to uh, to, to combat climate change, they're still not willing to have their their personal finances impacted. So that's a real difficulty is coming up with policies that do sort of meet these ambitious climate change targets, but without people feeling like it's hurting their own pockets. Talk to us about um, Scottish independence. The, uh, the, the country has been uh, in the eyes of the world uh, more than it's ever been perhaps in the last uh, couple of weeks. What's that done in terms of polling around uh, independence? Yes, so um, I, I mean, it's too early to tell what impact specifically um, the, the, the COP conference will have had on attitudes towards independence. We do know that one of the sort of planks of the SNP's argument for independence is that Scotland is a greener, more environmentally friendly country. We're a country that cares about this issue more, unlike those people in London who don't. So I imagine that Nicholas Sturgeon will be using this to try and further the independent argument more. 
But more generally, what we're seeing in the polls is a very, very finely balanced debate. The country is pretty much split directly in two. Some opinion polls show yes in, in the lead. Slightly more opinion polls show that there's a, there's a majority against independence, but it's very, very fine. And it'd be very, very difficult to tell it, uh, which way a, a Scottish independence referendum would go if one were to take place. The big thing that's shifted since 2014 is that back then, the sort of the median voter, the voter who decided the result, if you like, um, their view was that Scottish independence would make them personally worse off. Whereas now that isn't the case anymore. Actually, they think it will make no difference in any other way. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.